there are currently no enforceable federal drinking water standards for any PFAS. So what that means is that there is no routine testing required of public water supplies. And under federal law, if high levels are detected in a water supply, they don't have to take action. From the Coastal Institute at the University of Rhode Island, this is Silent Chemicals Loud Science, a show that takes the better living out of chemistry. I'm Brandon Fuller, and along with your host, Judith Swift, we'll talk to experts from around the globe about what's eating you, chemically speaking, even if you don't know it. Airports, military bases, landfills, private septic systems. All of these are sources of PFAS chemicals on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, that seep into groundwater, and they eventually make their way into public and private wells, contaminating the drinking water of hundreds of thousands of residents. Silent Spring Institute, a leading nonprofit research organization based in Newton, Massachusetts, has been at the forefront of well water testing on the Cape, trying to learn more about how exposure to everyday chemicals impacts women's health, with a particular focus on breast cancer. We've long been concerned about chemical exposures on Cape Cod. We were actually founded by breast cancer activists here in Massachusetts who were concerned to see that breast cancer rates were higher on the Cape and the islands. Dr. Laurel Shader is a senior scientist at Silent Spring Institute. Our organization, as a research organization, continues to partner with the Massachusetts Breast Cancer Coalition and with other advocacy groups to extend the impact of our work. Dr. Shader leads the Institute's research on PFAS, including learning how people are exposed and identifying where these chemicals come from in the first place. The study that I started working on back in 2009 was designed to understand the levels of what we call emerging contaminants in the environment. So these are chemicals that are not currently regulated in drinking water, but are showing up in many different locations and raise concerns about health effects. Let's join the conversation now with Judith and Dr. Shader. Tell us a little more about just exactly when you talk about PFAS chemicals, how many are there, what makes them particularly of interest, and how is it they're of such concern to us? So PFAS stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. It's a class of over 9,000 chemicals recognized by the EPA, and they all share certain chemical characteristics. So they are extremely persistent because they have these carbon-fluorine bonds that basically don't break down under normal conditions. These are all synthetic chemicals, so they're all produced by people, um, and they've been in use for decades. Um, they're in products like Teflon and Scotchgard and Stainmaster, and chemists discovered these chemicals and started manufacturing them in the 1940s and 50s, and they've been widely used in stain-resistant, waterproof, uh, and greaseproof consumer products since then. However, it's just been in the past mostly five to 10 years when they've really started to get a lot of attention. Um, that's been due in large part to their widespread discovery in drinking water supplies. They are common additives to a class of firefighting foams, commonly used at military bases and airports, and they're in many consumer products as well. So, you know, you might have grown up hearing to avoid Teflon pans or having some concerns about some of the products that contain PFAS, but these really haven't been any, on anyone's radar screens until the last few years. 
That's also been coupled with an increasing number of scientific studies showing that these chemicals can be harmful to our health, even at low levels. So tell us a little bit about when, when you actually did discover that there were problems with PFAS chemicals on the Cape. How was the community alerted and how did the community respond? So at Silence Spring Institute, we're very much committed and very um, think a lot about how we talk about the results of our science with many different audiences. So for our study of PFAS in public wells, we communicated directly with the public water suppliers themselves. And then we, we had public events as well where residents on the Cape could come and hear about the results directly and ask questions. We also wrote a report that was aimed for a general audience and uh, created other materials to explain our results in an, in an understandable way. Not surprisingly, many people were really concerned to learn about these chemicals showing up in drinking water. Um, and it's a, certainly a, a challenge when we talk about these chemicals because there's no, uh, well, there had, at the time, there were no uh, drinking water standards in place. Um, it can be difficult to strike the right balance in terms of explaining why we're studying the chemicals, explaining why they're of concern, um, but also letting people know that um, in some cases the levels were quite low and below levels where, where we were aware of any health effects happening at that time. And we were really grateful to the water suppliers who took part in that study um, because in, in some ways it opened up a can of worms for them. We found chemicals that they didn't have to test for and that they had no standards to compare their results to. But the water suppliers that we talked with said they really wanted to have this information available to them so that they could um, look ahead and be prepared down the road for potential future regulations. And so when they went through that process, they, uh, what did they do to address the PFAS chemicals in particular? Uh, so I'll mention the Hyannis water system in particular because they've had the largest challenge with respect to PFAS chemicals. The, some of the public wells in Hyannis had um, higher levels of PFAS than any other public water supply in Massachusetts. And as a result, they have had to in, uh, install multi-million dollar treatment systems to remove PFAS from the water, even ahead of those drinking water standards that were put in place by the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. So they've been uh, really ahead of the curve in terms of taking action to address these challenges. For other water suppliers, they can use this information in their longer-term planning for thinking about uh, potential future drinking water regulations and also thinking about making sure their wells are located in areas um, that are well-protected. We heard from water suppliers who appreciated having this information because it helped them make the case that, that we still need to protect open land around the public wells where they pull their water. One of our key findings was that wells that were located in more densely developed areas were more likely to have PFAS and these other emerging contaminants. So for the water suppliers, it helped them make the case to their communities that it's really important to preserve open land around their public wells. 
Prior to coming to Silent Spring Institute, I was a postdoctoral researcher at the Harvard School of Public Health, and I was uh, well acquainted with Elsie Sunderland, who is one of the research project leaders um, of the current STEEP project. So, you know, she had let me know about the project that she was planning to work on with the STEEP team. At that time, I was splitting my time between Harvard and Silent Spring Institute and was developing my interest in PFAS chemicals. Some of our work on emerging contaminants also focused on private well water quality. And Allison McCann, who's a member of the STEEP team from the University of Rhode Island, is an expert in private wells. She works with private well owners addressing water quality concerns in Rhode Island. So these proposals and projects come together sort of through collaborations and discussions and brainstorming how to develop a an interdisciplinary research project that um, pulls on the strengths of all the team members. And one of the great things about the STEEP team is how diverse our research experiences are. Some of the people on the team are epidemiologists, some are toxicologists, we have a chemical engineer um, and environmental scientists and many other types of expertise as well. Um, the research translation, community engagement. So I really appreciate all the experience that the diverse members of the STEEP team bring to the project. So it's interesting that that work that you did, the early work that you did, was a, a real uh, factor in the development of the uh, current partnership of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences Superfund Research Program. And it was an outgrowth of those cooperative endeavors. You currently serve as a co-lead on the Community Engagement Corps, along with Allison McCann, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, she's a water quality program coordinator with the University of Rhode Island's Cooperative Extension. So tell us a bit about what that role entails, because I know you're also working as a research scientist. So you're really in both camps. Sure. So the Community Engagement Corps is really the link between the research team and the community. And for our STEEP study, many of our community engagement activities are focused on Cape Cod. And given Silent Spring Institute's long-term history of conducting community-engaged research on the Cape, it was a nat natural extension of our work to be part of the STEEP team and to lead the Community Engagement Corps focused on Cape Cod. So Based on our early Silent Spring Institute study in 2011 of PFAS and emerging contaminants in private wells, we felt the need to learn more and we wanted to answer community questions about PFAS levels in private wells, which serve about 15% of Cape Cod residents. So through the STEEP project, we've been able to collaborate with other members of the research team to measure PFAS levels in private wells all throughout Cape Cod. We tested water from 101 private well owners, and we presented those findings both in individual customized reports uh, that we developed for our private well participants. We also conducted community-level outreach events, including presentations to high school students as well as to, um, to other members of the community on the Cape. We also identify other opportunities for members of the STEEP team to connect directly with residents of Cape Cod. So again, back before COVID, uh, we attended many types of community events, such as water events, um, health fairs. Um, they have, there's an annual Cape Cod Coastal Conference that brings together people from many different sectors on Cape Cod. And we 
appreciated those opportunities to bring together members of, of our STEEP team and to present about our work and to hear from people on Cape Cod about their questions about water quality and to see how our research could address those concerns. How do you make that transition from your role as research scientist into a, a community engagement person who's really working very hard to maintain a good balance? Yeah, I find it one of the most satisfying parts of my job. Um, when I was a graduate student and a postdoc, early on, a lot of my work really just seemed relevant to other scientists, and I would go to science conferences and write science papers. But getting back to my interest in the environment and to making a difference, I really appreciate opportunities to talk about my research, to translate the findings, and to explain to people what it means. It's uh, I, it's a, a healthy challenge trying to, to strike that right balance, like you said, of making people aware and giving them information about what they can do to better protect their health and to protect the environment. Um, not in a scary way, but just in a realistic way. You know, these are chemicals that we're concerned about. Here's what we do know about health effects. Here's what we're studying right now. And we, as much as possible, have tips for things that people can do. And these can be household tips, so products to avoid buying or ways to reduce chemicals being in your home. Some of these can be at a community level, so joining a community watershed group or getting involved with a local environmental organization. And then some of this can be broader than that, letting manufacturers know that you don't want products that contain certain harmful chemicals or fighting for legislation that would uh, ban chemicals from being in products. So I think that by having the actionable pieces, and, and we know from our research that when people feel empowered and feel like they understand information, that it doesn't feel scary to them, that they feel empowered to take steps. What was the result of your testing in private wells? So the results of our preliminary round of private well water sampling showed us that PFAS are common in Cape Cod private wells. Fortunately, the vast majority of the wells that we tested did not exceed the current Massachusetts standard for six PFAS chemicals. This is one of the strictest standards in the country, and only 3% of the wells that we tested had levels that were above that standard. Many of the wells we tested did have detectable levels of PFAS. Nearly half had measurable levels of at least one of the PFAS chemicals that we found. And one of the pieces of information that we hoped to learn was to better identify what those sources might be. So to think about what the sources might be, some of the clues we used were actually other chemicals that we found in the same water samples. And in particular, we looked at the levels of nitrate. So nitrate... Um, is found in, in wastewater. It's also present in fertilizers. In general, on Cape Cod, where you see high, higher levels of nitrate in the drinking water, that's a sign of more septic system impact or more wastewater impact. Overall, we did see that wells with higher levels of nitrate tended to have higher levels of PFAS, and we interpret that to mean that septic systems could be one important source of PFAS chemicals. And as we move forward with the study, we would like to map out where the levels that we found match up with other potential sources. For instance, we know that landfills can be sources of PFAS and other types of wastewater from commercial businesses may also be a source. 
So uh, let's let's assume that I'm one of the people who you uh, tested my well and you found that I actually was one of a, a smaller number of people who actually had a problem with being above the regulatory level in Massachusetts. What would you tell me to do? What advice do you give to such people? So as part of the report back package that our participants receive, we also provide information about water treatment. So the water samples that we tested were untreated because we really wanted to be able to compare local land use with the water quality. So it's possible someone might have a water treatment system already in place in their home so that the water that they're drinking might already have the PFAS filtered out. In other cases, people who found that they were over the drinking water standard may want to take steps to remove the PFAS from the water. So those reports provided information about the types of filters that can remove PFAS from the water. And Allison and I both make ourselves available to any participants who would like to talk to us and have questions about what their results mean and what steps that they can take. Some well owners might want to do a follow-up water test to see if the, the test results are consistent over time or if they, um, they're fluctuating. So we also help work with our well owners to do additional testing of their water if that's something that they're interested in. And if, if for example, I have um, PFAS in my private well, but I don't have um, an endless supply of funds to manage the problem, What's the least expensive way that I can improve the uh, tap water that I'm using for cooking, for drinking? So for people that do have PFAS in their drinking water, the most economical option is to go with an activated carbon filter. Um, These can be granular activated carbon filter pitchers um, that can be effective for at least partially removing PFAS from the water. Other types of carbon filters are uh, under the sink, a solid carbon block filter, which seem to do a bit better at removing PFAS um, because they have more surface area. I would not point people in the direction of bottled water for quite a few reasons. One is that bottled water is not routinely tested for PFAS or other contaminants. So there's no guarantee that the water in a bottle is any cleaner than the water that you're pulling from your well. There are also, of course, concerns about the sustainability or lack thereof of bottled water um, because water is heavy and it takes a lot of energy to bottle and move that water around. And bottled water raises concerns about plastics that are used in the bottles and can leach out into the water. So if you were in our study and you had these types of questions, you know, we would help you evaluate the types of filters that would be within your price range and are certified to be able to remove PFAS. Am I correct in saying that um, many of these chemicals uh, that fall into the PFAS family, uh, they don't create necessarily immediate reactions in people in terms of um, impacts on health, but they're very often long-term evolutions of these issues? Absolutely. So, so you're right that, that in many cases with these chemicals, we're talking about subtle changes to our physiology and the potential for accumulated effects over long periods of time, potentially over someone's lifetime. 
Um, although I do also work with people in communities that have had high levels of exposure and where they do feel like they've experienced health effects that they can very definitively link to exposures in their community, either from water or, um, or from their local environment in, in other ways. So when we... This might be, for instance, a case where there's a manufacturing plant adjacent to their town or something of that sort. Absolutely. So there are um, communities in, in West Virginia, in New York, in New Hampshire, um, where in other states where quite high levels of PFAS uh, were found in the local communities because of discharges from the locations where these chemicals were manufactured. But we're also worried about the, the chemical exposures in the general population. So because PFAS are so persistent, because they can accumulate in our bodies for months or years, and because they're in so many products, CDC testing has found that over 98% of Americans have traces of PFAS in our blood. And studies that are conducted in the general population have linked PFAS exposures with elevated cholesterol, with elevated risk of cancer, um, with uh, effects on the thyroid, with kidney, um, and effects on the immune system. So there are many, many different challenges with, with thinking about PFAS, both in communities that have had high exposures um, and what what to advise residents there, as well as thinking about population-wide exposures, even for those of us who don't live in communities that have had high levels of exposure. Joint Base Cape Cod has been involved in some ways with this process because of their use of AFFF. How have they either contributed to the problem or assisted in the addressing of the problem? So Joint Base Cape Cod is one of many military bases around the country where PFAS contamination has been linked to the use of a certain class of firefighting foam, AFFF, which stands for aqueous film forming foam. Uh, these are class B firefighting foams and they're used to fight fuel fires. So for instance, if a plane catches on fire or other types of fires where there's a lot of liquid fuel, they're also have been used in training activities for uh, preparing for these kinds of fires. So PFAS, because of their extremely persistent nature, and also because of their chemical properties, they're what we call surfactants. So they're sort of soap-like chemicals that create foams. So they're very effective for fighting these types of fires. Unfortunately, once the fire or the training exercise is over, if the runoff from that training goes into the ground, those chemicals will persist in the ground for decades long after those training activities are over. So Joint Base Cape Cod, like so many other military bases, has, um, has PFAS contamination in the groundwater linked to the use of those foams. Um, Joint Base Cape Cod has conducted extensive testing of the groundwater to identify where the groundwater has elevated levels of PFAS. They've done testing of private wells, and they've been providing treatment for private well owners whose wells exceed the um, EPA guideline for PFOS and PFOA. Those are two of the most common PFAS chemicals. There is also a public water supply that has, um, has had impacts on, um, on wells located closest to Joint Base Cape Cod. And so they, the Air Force has been um, providing funds to, for that, the Mashpee water supply to install treatment on that well to address the PFAS challenge. 
how so far are we doing as a nation in managing the distinction between federal oversight, the EPA guidelines, and a state-by-state approach? So the EPA, I would say, has been somewhat slow in um, creating a drinking water standard for any PFAS chemical. So there are currently no enforceable federal drinking water standards for any PFAS. So what that means is that there is no routine testing required of public water supplies. And under federal law, if high levels are detected in a water supply, um, they don't have to take action under federal law. Most water supplies, when they discover they're over the guideline, um, do take action to turn off those contaminated wells or install treatment. But under federal law, there's no enforceable standard. In 2016, the EPA established a lifetime health advisory for the total amount of two PFAS chemicals, PFOS and PFOA. And they set that level at 70 parts per trillion. And that was quite a bit lower than a previous guideline that they had established in 2009. However, many scientists and state regulators view that guideline as not strict enough. They think that the standard should include other PFAS chemicals that there should be, um, that the level should be set at a lower level in order to protect health in light of research that shows effects at low levels of exposure. And they think that it should be an enforceable standard so that water supplies should have to do testing and be required to treat for PFAS. So Massachusetts is one of about 12 states that have gone above and beyond what the federal uh, EPA has done in terms of their PFAS response. Um, So some states have tackled PFAS one at a time, so they'll have a standard for PFAS and PFOA separately, maybe with uh, other PFAS chemicals as well. In October of 2020, the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection enacted a standard for the total amount of six PFAS chemicals, and they set that at 20 parts per trillion. So that's over three times lower than the EPA guideline, and it includes more individual PFAS chemicals. So I do think that it's helpful and important for states to be able to set their own guidelines and to take steps to protect their own citizens. But without a federal standard, I worry that states that haven't taken those those actions um, aren't doing enough to protect their residents. So I would hope that the EPA would pass a standard for PFAS in drinking water. They are on the the path under the Safe Drinking Water Act to establish a standard. Um, But I do think it's important for states to be able to act ahead of the EPA to look at science. And in some ways, they can be more nimble in responding to new science and taking additional steps to protect, protect their residents. You've also testified quite a lot before committees, state legislative bodies, and the Department of Environmental Protection, among others. And what's your key message to these folks when you have that opportunity? I guess my basic message is, and it depends a little bit about whether we're talking about drinking water or consumer products, um, is to suggest the regulators take into account a precautionary approach. What are the things that we can do to protect people's health um, in the absence of complete information? So I'll I'll take the example of food packaging. Um, PFAS are widely used in microwave popcorn bags. And I led a 2017 study that tested PFAS in fast food packaging across the country. And we found that nearly half of the wrappers that we tested contained PFAS. 
Now, we don't know that every single PFAS chemical is harmful to our health, and we don't know exactly at what level <laughs> these are, are harmful to our health. But as a class, I feel like we have enough information based on the toxicity of the PFAS chemicals that have been studied, based on their ability to move through the environment, and their extreme persistence that, you know, we just, we don't need these to be in, in consumer products. There may be some, you know, essential or critical uses such as medical devices where PFAS play a key role. Um, but, you know, food packaging or dental floss, you know, that we put in our mouths that, you know, directly contacts our food does not need to contain PFAS. And so that's, that's one key message and when we're talking about drinking water standards and figuring out how to advise regulators about where they should set the levels and how broad a net, um, I think another key message is for, um, for the regulators to take into account new science and where we have um, chemicals that we haven't extensively studied, but they, they are very chemically similar to PFAS chemicals that already have um, proven health links um, to take a, a as wide an approach as possible as the science will support and to be flexible in the future to uh, th uh, take into consideration new results um, or information about new chemicals that currently aren't, aren't on our radar screen. So let's talk a little bit now about what you do. You're, you're not only a scientist and someone who's doing outreach work in the community, but you're also a mom. And so you have the same concerns that every other young parent has in terms of what do, what products do we use? Uh, what do I let my children eat? Uh, what kind of packaging do I purchase? And on and on and on. Tell me how you manage that. How do you manage it psychologically? How do you manage it in terms of just getting the information that you need, because even for you as a scientist, it's difficult to really call out all of the products that have PFAS. So just how do you manage this? It is a bit of an occupational hazard being a scientist who focuses on PFAS and other very common everyday chemicals and the, the fact that they're linked to so many different health effects, it can be very difficult to translate that to, um, to my home life and to making decisions about the food my children eat and the products that we bring into our home. And I realized how, how challenging it is as a consumer uh, to, to learn about what are the, all the chemicals in products. Um, PFAS are often not on product labels. Um, so even though I know a lot about PFAS, I often struggle because I often don't know if products have PFAS. Um, and PFAS is just one of many types of chemicals we worry about. You mentioned BPA and bis, uh, bisphenol A, which is a plasticizer, um, which many people were concerned about uh, the, the fact that it was used in many uh, baby bottles and other plastics. Um, BPA has been phased out to some degree, and but is unfortunately being uh, substituted with other um, types of bisphenols, which raise the same types of health concerns. Um, and there are so many chemicals that really don't undergo stringent testing before they're widely put into use. So it can be a little bit paralyzing as a parent and as a consumer to know what's safe for my family. Um, I guess I, I would say that I try to do the best that I can. You know, I try to minimize our reliance on plastics. I try to 
skip the extra features on products, you know, not getting stain resistant carpets, um, trying to avoid features that I don't really need. Um, and just hope that I'm, I'm doing the best that I can for my children. You know, my children go to school or at least normally they went to school. Um, I don't have total control over their environment. So I do the best I can, uh, when they're at home and with the products that we buy and through my work, I try to work for future generations to make sure that we're, um, you know, avoiding these chemicals being in products in the first place. Laurel, you're obviously very passionate about this subject, um, and I've seen that in operation, full operation, uh, throughout the time that we've had an opportunity to work together. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your own experience with that very thin line that exists between um, educating the public and advocating with regard to this. Help us to understand a little bit why scientists are not supposed to advocate and how do you personally draw that line? That is a great question. And that's something that we, we think about a lot in our work. Um, scientists have are, are viewed as being objective. And we try very much in our work to be objective in terms of the science that we do. Um, but when, especially when we study something like public health and we're learning about chemicals that we see are harmful to people's health, we're finding them in products or finding them in water, it does feel like there's an obligation to let people know that. And so where we draw this line between being a, a scientist or an advocate, I guess I see my role as providing education and translating the research into information that other people can use to say, you know, write letters to a retailer and letting them know, you know, please stop using PFAS in your products or supporting certain bills. Um, I think for scientists, we aim to be one step removed from the advocacy so that no one questions the legitimacy of our science. We need to be seen first and foremost as, as creating new knowledge and not having the legitimacy of that questioned um, if people see us as advocates. But we definitely feel an obligation to translate those findings so that people can take steps to protect their health. At the end of the day, our, most of our funding comes from, from you know, either our donors or from federal research grants. And so the people who are supporting this work are the taxpayers and people who donate to our work. And we definitely feel an obligation to, to share what we learn and, um, and prevent disease. We were founded by breast cancer activists who wanted to prevent breast cancer by learning about factors that could play a role in, um, in causing breast cancer. So that precautionary and preventative um, approach is a, a thread throughout all of our work. That's Dr. Laurel Shader, a senior scientist at Silent Spring Institute and co-lead of the Steep Superfund Research Center's Community Engagement Corps. You can learn more about Steep and Dr. Shader's work at uri.edu steep. That's uri.edu steep. And you can follow them on Twitter at Steep Superfund. The Steep Superfund Research Program is a partnership of the University of Rhode Island, Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, the Department of Environmental Health, and Silent Spring Institute. 
Research reported in this podcast was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health under award number P42ES027706. The content is solely the responsibility of the speakers and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health. Silent Chemicals Loud Science is a production of the Coastal Institute at the University of Rhode Island, hosted by Judith Swift and edited by me, Brandon Fuller. If you haven't already, make sure you don't miss our next episode by subscribing to Silent Chemicals Loud Science wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us online at uri.edu slash coastalinstitute, on Twitter at uri underscore coastalinst, that's I-N-S-T, or on Instagram at uri underscore coastalinstitute. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.